promises that keep us striving in the midst of wanting to give up. Promises that comfort us in the midst of the deepest of despair and darkness. Promises that thrill us and promise us an eternity. Promises, us, promises that challenge us and even upbraid us. And Father, we, um, we claim all those promises which are more real than even the feelings that we have. And Father, what we desire is to live lives that are based on those promises as opposed to the roller coaster ride of our emotions. And I pray that your promises might find great lodging in our hearts. Father, we, we have just sung that the mountains will bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. We believe, O oh God, this thrice holy God, that indeed the mountains will bow down and seas will roar at the sound, at the very mention of your name. That men will cry out for rocks to cover them because they never dreamed, they never dreamed that you were this holy. And Father, we will, we will find our own sense of awe and yet protected, covered, sheltered, refuged in the blood of Jesus Christ, the only thing that prepares us to meet you is his shed blood on our behalf. And so, Father, though we deserve something else, we will get forgiveness. Not because of our merit, not because of anything we've done, but because you are who you are and have promised what you have promised and have done what you have done in Christ Jesus. Father, we will never, we will never cease to worship you. Now, Father, accept these gifts as small as they might be. The number of zeros do not matter. What does matter is the condition of our hearts as we give it. Might those hearts be full of gratitude. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. As I read the first four verses of Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food in day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, oh, it is something that endures forever. I want to remind you uh, where I am. Uh, this is my last installment 
on this summer series that we've taken to look at the core values of Grace Divan. If it's not in your bulletin, it's all over. We've stuck this in your bulletin I don't know how many times, but we wanted you to get a glimpse of the things that are fundamental to our, our effort at doing ministry. And so next week, you'll get the last one, small groups, which we believe is the primary vehicle of discipleship. And Richard, who is over that entire ministry, will be preaching next week to tell you more and more about small groups. But I've, I've, um, I've ended up on the number two, which is the lofty view of God. And you might recall that uh, we talked about God being holy, holy, holy. And then I said last week that one of the applications or outgrowths or byproducts of that concept of God, that is God being holy, is that it affects our worship. And so what I've done last week and what I want to conclude doing this week is, is lead you in a discussion of worship. And, and I told you some instances in the scripture of worship being rejected last week. And then concluded by saying that the first insight that we have in the scriptures concerning the nature of worship is found in that John 4 passage when Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well where he says worship is to be done in spirit and truth. And we talked a little bit about spirit and truth last week, about the, the only worship, the only worshipers that God is looking for are those who are worshiping in spirit and in truth. I want to add to that some this morning, but before I do, I have to make somewhat of a disclaimer because I'm really using Psalm 42 poorly. Um, exegetically, um, this is not a psalm about worship. It's a psalm about a man in the midst of all of his problems crying out to God. What you have is, is as the psalm opens, is a, is a marvelous depiction, a poignant description of, of a man's desperate need for God. His desperate attempt to find where God is in all of his trouble. So that's what this psalm is about. It's not about worship. And I, and I didn't want to try and just yank something out of the Bible and just run with it. But there is something about this man's attempt to find God that I think is very germane when it comes to the subject of worship. Listen to this man. Just two verses. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When am I ever going to once again sense that I'm in His presence? Now, now that's what I really want to draw from this morning because I think what you have there, ladies and gentlemen, is a, is a man who is expressing something so absent in worship today. You know, in our postmodern culture, the very idea of worship is almost countercultural. Uh, worship is is, a, is an unnatural act in in the culture in which we live, ladies and gentlemen. And um, I'm afraid that we've turned worship into something as I said last week, which is, is more of a spectator sport than it is something participatory. And, and that, ladies and gentlemen, I think explains a lot. Now, what is it that makes worship vital? Is it my sermon? I guarantee you, many of you have walked out of here on Sunday saying, 
He didn't do a very good job this morning. What's the matter with him? Or, or maybe, maybe it's the music. And others of you walk out and say, I don't like that style of music. I, I wish they'd choose something different. Can't they do something about the music? Or maybe it's the mood. Maybe it's the, the mood that is that we attempt to set. Which, by the way, we never attempt to do. But maybe maybe it's just the mood that I'm not in. Or, or maybe maybe it's the weather. You know, who could possibly worship when it's 102 outside? Well, gang, I want to suggest to you that none of that really. Well, I will get back a little bit, but that's not really what's at stake to make worship vital. This is. Um, I want to suggest to you, to you that if you if you boil it down to its lowest common denominator, its lowest distillate, there are two basic elements in worship. One is the self-revelation of God. That is, I think that if there is no faithful presentation of the truths and the precepts and the promises and the demands and the comforts of God in a worship service, I think what you're going to find is, is not something that, that is approaching worship because you're not in the context of truth. The other element, the most basic element, has to do with the soul's thirst for God. And I have to tell you that I'm not, I'm not in charge of that. Um, you are. Oh, Dr. Young, there you go again, shifting the blame upon us. Well, maybe I am. But I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, if there is no thirst, hunger for God, then you might walk out with a little tidbit from the sermon. Oh, that was a good story he told. I like that story. <laughs> it was amazing. Most of the comments that I get about my sermons are about my stories. I remember Jimmy Umloff telling a story a couple years ago that I heard him tell. It was about cutting the grass. And you know, does anybody enjoy that, particularly in this heat? Um, I mean, it is, it is awful out there. And there you're cutting the grass, and, you know, and you're finally finished, and your wife from the inside sees that you're finished. And so she comes out and brings you a nice, cold, chocolate milkshake. Is that what you want? Of course not. It's kind of just all the way down, you know. What you're looking for, a thirsty man is looking for water. Not a milkshake. Well, folks, thirsty spiritually, spiritually thirsty people, they're not looking for my stories. They're looking for an occasion where they can be drawn into the presence of God because they've brought with them a thirst. And they brought it with them long before I got to stand up to preach. You know, folks, um, 
I, I'm saying to you that the missing elements, and we can do all these other things in terms of tweaking worship and all, but the missing element is what you see this man doing in Psalm 42. You know, I, I do think that most of you, most Christians enjoy being in church. You, it, It's a ple- pleasant experience overall. They come looking forward to seeing their friends and, and uh, feeling good about their usefulness and, and how they're being used to build a kingdom. And, and even the teaching, they, they, get a, they get something out of. But guys, think about that. You see, that's all stuff that is meeting my needs. And there again, we have arrived at a worship service with a consumer mentality that I'm here to get. And ladies and gentlemen, the very essence of worship is the opposite of that. I'm here to give. I'm here to lay something before God that that maybe I did last week, but I'm going to do it again this week. Because my, my soul thirsts to be in this presence of this God. And when truth is setting the context, the, the, the environment, the climate, ladies and gentlemen, the next element is the element of a thirsty heart. And I want to suggest to you that that's the missing element. Not the music, not my sermon, not the mood, not the weather. It has to do with the kind of appetites that we bring to this hour. Um, You know, there's a a statement by Augustine, St. Augustine, that everybody, I think, knows. But if you don't know this one, you, um, you ought to know this one. This is a good one. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Because you made us for yourself. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have to say to you that the thing that God, the reason that God saved us all is to make worshipers out of us. Because that's what we're going to be doing for an eternity. You're going to be engaged in an eternity of worship. To prove that point, I I want to suggest to you that you go this week and start reading in Revelation chapter 4. If you can only get Revelation 4 and 5, it might be enough. But Revelation chapter 4 starts with an angel calling to John saying, Come up here. (laughs) The angel says, John, would you come up here please? And then notice in chapter 4, the mentions of the throne. The apocalypse, the book of Revelation, is, is coming from a scene that John gets of heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, you know what those folks are doing up there? All day, all night, all eternity. They're worshiping. And, and I'm saying that the missing element for us, for me, is the soul's thirst for God. Does my soul have such a thirst? And does yours? And if not, 
how might we get one? Let me mention some things and, and then we'll wrap up. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, I want to suggest that if you... I had somebody tell me just recently that her heart was so hard towards God. The first thing that we have to do about that is repent. If we want such a longing, then the first thing that we have to do is say, God, I don't have it. Please forgive me. I want it. But I'm sorry, oh God, I have a cool heart. Would you please warm that thing up? Now, the other thing that I, I want to mention is that this longing grows out of, having done that, it, it, it grows out of two or three things, or really these things are kind of a, related. I think it first grows out of a knowledge of who God is, and that's why I started with the holy, holy, holy thing. A knowledge of who this God is. If you look at the book of Revelation 4, or the chapters 4 and 5 that I mentioned earlier, you'll find that these men, these angels, these creatures, these elders, are struck, 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 struck down. And all they can say is, holy, holy, holy. Now, the, so the, first, the second thing after my confession of repentance is to get a glimpse about who this God really is. Because then in turn, secondly, what that does is give me a sense of who I am. But thirdly, neither one of these, this is not going to happen unless this happens. So I'm going to get a knowledge of who I am by getting a knowledge, a better working understanding of who He is. I have got to be gripped with the magnitude of this God. Or it will never give me glimpses of who I am and therefore the longing, the thirsting, I, I, I don't think is going to be soon coming. You know, this might be true to just me, you know, and you might not dislike this word like I dislike this word. But I mean, you, you might, this might be expressive for you. So this is, I'm just expressing a personal hatred. <laughs> the, when, when I hear people call God neat, isn't God neat? Well, ladies and gentlemen, you take that word into the heaven with you and see how you feel about it. Because I don't think that word is ever going to come to your minds when you're in the presence of God. Neat. There'll be some words that'll come into your presence, come into your minds, but not that one. But you see, what that does is reflect a concept of God that is tiny. And what we need is a concept of God that is transcendent. And once we get that. Then we start learning some things about ourselves. And then we see, oh my, how much do I need that God? And then we might just cry out, uh, uh, God, uh, uh, where, when, why, when, you, when, when shall I come and appear before God? My soul thirsts for this God because I know more and more about who I am. And... The more I know him, the more I, I think thirst begins to develop. You know, the, 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 um, the only thing that I can liken it to, and it's a poor analogy, I, I admit, but it's like falling in love. Like getting to know somebody that you really love. And you get to know a little, and you want to know more. 
and you never tire of knowing more and more. And then I begin to compare myself with her and the likenesses and the dislikes, or the, the, the similarities and the dissimilarities. And we find that we have so much in common, and so I long to know more about this woman. But in that process of getting to know God, I find, oh my, I'm not very much like him. There's a lot of dissimilarities between me and him. And so I long. I long for that God. Now, the last thing I want to tell you that, that I think would help is, is this. Do you think that, that my Sunday morning 30-minute ditty is enough for you? Well, I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, it isn't. I promise you it isn't. <laughs> um, thirsty people are people who want to not to simply spend time in corporate worship, but in private worship. And that's what we say here in this, an increasing involvement in private and corporate worship. Private worship. Now, to that end, I have a gift for you. I bought these, um, and I want to give you one. It's going to cost me about 25 cents a head, but I can cover it. When I first became a Christian, somebody stuck this thing in my hand. I got lots of them. You can have one. A free short. We got a free concert. We got a free band. Um, and, and, and this is where I began. It's a little pamphlet called Seven Minutes with God. And you got seven minutes, don't you? You don't spend any time privately with God? Well, how about seven minutes? Can you start with seven minutes? I, I got to warn you, though. Once you start with that seven minutes, it's going to go to ten. And ten's going to go to fifteen. And fifteen's going to go to twenty. Twenty's going to go to thirty. But this is a good, and it's got these nice little things about what you do for the whole seven minutes. I know that seven minutes might frighten some of you, but, but it, it tells you how to fill up the seven minutes. Gang, um, your first tantalizing exposure to God probably came in a worship service. Yes. But then that takes us to the place where we say, well, you know, I'd like to spend some more time. I'd like to get to know this God, but I'm going to have to go buy myself a Bible. We sell a lot of Bibles in this church, you know. I'm going to have to buy myself a Bible. And so in private, we begin to, that process of falling in love, comparing ourselves to him, finding out the dissimilarities, and, and, and making the applications so that we can become more like him. And we begin to find ourselves longing more to know more about him. We discover that morally we have very little in common with him. But we are created in his image. What does that mean? We, we, we respond to him in confession, in thanksgiving, in praise, in adoration, in submission. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder where that can be done best. Here or alone. I, I have to make a confession. For me, it's better done in private. Because I have a lot of things on my mind when it comes to a worship service. You know? Is Jimmy Umloff going to embarrass me again? <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, but, you know, I, there's a lot of things that distract me. And I find that my better times are held in my office. And that may be true of you, but we go to the private worship, and then we're driven back to the corporate worship. And it's kind of a vicious circle. And, and, and that worship service, this worship service, should do one of two things. Or maybe they're one of the same. 
But this worship service should cultivate a greater thirst in you for God and satisfy some of that thirst at the same time. We get a small drink, and then we go home and we want another drink because we found ourselves thirsty. Let me mention a couple of three dangers, and I'm finished. Guys, worship services can, can err in lots of ways. We can overemphasize truth at the expense of emotion. Or we can overemphasize emotion at the expense of truth. There is a real delicate balance here, trying to balance those two things. But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you are more than just a head. You have more than just cognitive. There is more to you. And so to engage your emotions is absolutely part of it. But you can emphasize either one of those too much and, and mess things up. But do you remember David's worship? You know, I've, my poor wife, I take her through so much. Um, but I've all, you know, when David danced in the streets because the ark was being returned to Jerusalem and he danced in the streets and did cartwheels down the streets of Jerusalem and all and, and exposed himself and all that. And his wife said, what kind of fool are you? I just wondered what my wife would say to me if I did cartwheels up here is what I'm saying. But guys, there's a man overtaken with emotion. And it is never to be despised. Never to be despised among us. Never. And if we do, then I think we've committed the sin of his wife, Michael. The other, another danger that I want to mention is a, a worship by rote. You know, um, there's the danger that I see in liturgy. And that's why we use, for instance, the Lord's Prayer only occasionally here. When I was raised, everything was predictable. And so I could turn off my mind and I could just go through the motions. And so I, instead of focusing on the heavenly, heavenly Father, I'm simply focusing on the procedures. That's why we like to give you some kind of variety. Not because we're trying to, you know, tickle your ears, we, we, but we don't want you to fall into some liturgical rut. Now, I'm not saying liturg liturgy is bad. I, I'm simply saying, in my opinion, that it can produce a kind of mindless worship because we've got it all memorized. And, you know, my, my favorite illustration of all that, uh, I've used that before, but is uh, the Gloria Patri. I sang that every Sunday morning that I can remember. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning and now will ever shall be world without end. Amen, amen. I sang that. By the way, that's a wonderful little chorus. But I tell you, I, if you sang it and was raised on the glory of pottery, I, I, I could almost count on my fingers the number of you who could tell me what that means. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning. I, I ask you, what is the it? As it was in the beginning. What's being referred to by that pronoun? What is the antecedent to that pronoun? It. My point is, it just illustrates what I'm trying to say. We sing things, we don't even know what we sang. We pray things, we don't even know what we prayed. You know? And that's why I think an overemphasis on liturgy can be dangerous. Thirdly, what I'm seeing in, in the world of evangelical worship today is um, a couple of things. Number one, a real man-centeredness, a real emphasis upon entertainment, 
But I say, ladies and gentlemen, worship is not about us. It's about God and what you go give Him, not what I come give you. It's about God. It's not about us. The fourth thing which is related to that is, folks, there is a real tendency today to replace proclamation with therapy and try to teach people how to handle this emotional problem and that emotional problem. Now, I, I'm sure that some of that is, is, is necessary and good, but it can never replace simply explaining and proclaiming the Word of God. Richard said that to me this week. That, you know, the best counseling is done by the proclamation of God's Word. But guys, the whole goal is to enable you as a congregation to meet up with the living God. And so there is to be a centrality of the Word persuasively and, and passionately proclaimed in music, in the sacraments, in my sermon, and then, having done so, a call for a response on the part of the people. You remember in Isaiah 6 when um, uh, the angels are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and God speaks and says, Whom shall I send and whom, whom, who will go for us? And after Isaiah has engaged in that act of worship, Isaiah says, Here I am! <laughs> Send me! There has to be some call to you to make a response. What worship is, ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, it can be almost likened to a festival where the bridegroom where the bride comes and meets the bridegroom. Um, we long to see him again. Let me read you one quote. I don't even know who did this. I'm going to read you two quotes and I'll shut up. Here's a quote. And I, don't, I don't have it. In general, rejoice in him and make a fool of yourself for him the way lovers have always made fools of themselves for the ones they love. Oh, come on, y'all. Go make a fool of yourself for the one that you love. I want to read you one other thing. I, I didn't know whether I was going to read this or not. I brought it with me, but it's a, it, just, it just depicts for me a man who sold, sold out to the wrong thing. Maybe not the wrong thing, but not this guy. But I just want you to hear this. This is from General Douglas MacArthur, whose strategies in the Second World War and the Korean War are still being studied. He, uh, he, his island-hopping strategy is the thing that won the war for us in the Pacific against overwhelming odds. But um, at the end of his military career, he goes to West Point and becomes the commandant of the Corps of Cadets. In essence, he becomes the head honcho at, at West Point. And um, in his last goodbye, which was said by some to be his most memorable, he is addressing the Corps of Military Cadets there at West Point. And uh, he used as his theme, duty, honor, country. And, and I'm told um, in this story that he spoke without notes. I can't imagine saying what I'm about to read without any notes. But he, um, 
he closed his message with a passage that uh, has not been forgotten, at least at those at West Point. And it was said that there was not a dry eye in the Corps of Cadets after he got finished. Listen to this guy. <laughs> the shadows are lengthening for me. The twilight is here. My days of old have vanished tone and tint. They have gone glimmering through the dreams of things that were. Their memory is one of wondrous beauty watered by tears and coaxed and caressed by the smiles of yesterday. I listen vainly, but with thirsty ear for the witching melody of faint bugles blowing reveille or of far drums beating the long roll. In my dreams I hear again the crash of guns, the rattle of musketry, the strange mournful mutter of the battlefield. But in the evening of my memory, I always come back to West Point. Always there echoes and re-echoes in my ears, duty, honor, country. Today marks my final roll call with you. But I want you to know that when I cross the river, my last conscious thought will be of the core and the core and the core. I bid you farewell. What a, what a, what a passion. In this man's life, a passion for the military. What I'm saying is that same kind of passion and thirst for God is the element that is missing in the worship of God's people today. I got a gift for you. That's good. Our Father, I do thank you for the privilege that is mine to break this word of life. It is my joy. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that your people have been stimulated by something. Something that was said or something perhaps that was sung by Missy. And I pray, O oh God, that you will use it to increase our appetites, make us more thirsty for the God who has saved us in Christ. That's our hope, O oh God, and that's the focus of what we're trying to do today. Honor it through the application of your Spirit to the hearts of men and women. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.